You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Medical Imaging, a program discussing the latest innovations in clinical radiology and imaging technologies. Your host is Dr. Jason Bernholtz, Director of Diagnostic Ultrasound Consultants in Oak Brook, Illinois. Women will often say after two or three children that her menstrual pattern changes, being shorter in duration, but with a lot of cramps, much heavier bleeding, sometimes with clots. This is adenomyosis and it's endemic. Adenomyosis is associated with cytokine and prostaglandin production and inflammation, at times pain and or bleeding can be extreme. It's also easy to diagnose adenomyosis nowadays with magnetic resonance imaging or ultrasound. Is there an option that replaces hysterectomy? And with me today is Dr. James Spees, who is professor of radiology at Georgetown University and chairman of the Department of Radiology at Georgetown University Medical Center. Today we're discussing image-guided endovascular therapy for uterine hemorrhage and adenomyosis. Hello, Jim. Welcome to ReachMD. Well, thanks, Jason, for having me. You know, before we get into the topic, I'd like to suggest for our listeners, especially those who see women patients, that they read your review of interventional radiology treatment for gynecologic and obstetric emergencies that was in the Obstetric and Gynecologic Clinics of North America in 2007. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, there are actually a number of recent reviews that have been written on mine and a number of other reviews that have been, I think, very helpful for the practitioner out in practice, although this is a little bit like one of those cafeteria things. You know, it has to cover a whole wide variety of topics from postpartum hemorrhage to preventing postpartum hemorrhage to gynecologic bleeding associated with malignancies, ectopics, other kinds of things. It's a wide spectrum of applications of this basic technique. And actually, this is one of the older areas that we've used embolizations. Embolization has been used in these circumstances for 30, 35 years now. I'm glad you put things in sort of historical concept because uh, and historical is maybe a little too grand, but the fact that this has been around for many, many years and there's a lot of experience with this. Well, there is a lot of experience. I think that one of the issues for us in looking at the application of embolotherapy or embolization in gynecology is it's difficult to study in a systematic way with randomized trials, et cetera, because these are small groups of patients that usually present in extremis in the middle of the night usually is what actually tends to happen. So if one were to sort of divide this and say, look at this from the perspective of obstetrical hemorrhage, these are patients uh, we might, at Medical Center of our size, which is a 500-bed medical center, we might have two or three cases a year in which we would have to intervene in a patient, and usually in a situation in which they've already tried a number of different things, and the patient's either facing a hysterectomy or disembolization. The way this is generally approached is similar to any other embolization procedure. We're able to put catheters from the femoral artery in an angiographic technique into the uterine arteries. When we do this here, we typically actually puncture both femoral arteries and put catheters in both uterine arteries because we're able to get a very quick roadmap of the whole situation in the uterus and we're able to embolize simultaneously to operators so we're able to do it much more quickly. The typical things you might see with postpartum hemorrhage are causes you can have gynecologic lacerations, cervical lacerations, or other lacerations. You can have uterine atony. You can have hemorrhage that's associated with a coagulopathy you know, related to childbirth, which maybe is the one that responds perhaps the least well because of the underlying coagulopathy. And then we have the placental abnormalities, which we commonly will have to treat either 
placenta accreta or placenta percreta, which both can be cause life-threatening hemorrhage. And at least in the percreta, in which the placenta goes through the wall of the uterus, it actually can most commonly will result in the need for a hysterectomy. I want to separate something out here. One is the true and unanticipated emergency, let's say a woman with a postpartum hemorrhage. Before we get to those that you can anticipate that there will be problems, how quickly can you mobilize your resources in the middle of the night to attend to somebody with just an emergency, completely unexpected hemorrhage? Well, the typical standard around the country, at least most departments shoot for, is to be able to be available to do something within an hour. Sometimes it's an hour and 15 minutes. So that's the first thing, is that when there's the first sign of hemorrhage that appears like it's going to need treatment from the delivery suite, it's important that the team look at the options and try to determine whether they need to have support. Most units would be able to get a patient down and be able to do a procedure in that length of time. And, of course, the patient's going to need blood support and pharmacologic support. And that usually also can be mobilized. So it's important that people look at that as a possibility. We've been called in on a number of occasions when they thought it was going to be necessary, and we came in, and then, of course, they were able to stabilize the patient without an embolization. That's going to happen. But I'd rather err on the side of conservatism and be sure that we're available in there. Well, do you have a preliminary step where you try to identify the exact bleeding point, or do you just go ahead and try to minimize it? We always do at least one angiographic set of images. And in fact, what we normally do is we would do an abdominal aortogram. We'd look at both the ovarian arteries and the uterine arteries, because we've seen cases in which the ovarian arteries supplying the uterus were really the source of the problem related to hemorrhage. And so we do that first, then we quickly put catheters in the uterine arteries and just repeat that. The total time for that is probably 10 minutes or less. It does not take very long to do that. That gives us the lay of the land and allows us to be sure that we treat in as focused a way as possible. So, for example, if we're seeing a focal area of bleeding on the left, we don't see it on the right. Well, then we're not going to treat the right. We're only going to treat the left. We try to treat only what's necessary. But if we don't see a clear source of hemorrhage or if we see multiple sources of hemorrhage that may be say, associated with venous bleeding or with atony or something like that, then we are going to go ahead and embolize both sides. But it's amazing you can actually do that, and it's rare to injure the uterus. It is rare to really significantly impact menses or the endometrium. And it's quite common that those patients are going to be able to become pregnant again in the future. So this, even though it sounds rather dire, actually is truly a uterine-sparing therapy, and the function of the uterus is usually spared. Now, do you go for a permanent occlusion, or is this something that you want as a temporary dissolving thing that will, after the bad episode is uh, done with? Usually what we like to do is a temporary agent. Our permanent agents aren't usually necessary, number one. And number two, they tend to go a little bit further out into the myometrium, and they might actually increase the risk of an injury to the uterus or endometrium. So we put a material in gel foam, which is gelatin sponge. This has been in use in interventional radiology since the mid-70s. And that's typically what we would use in a situation in which we're trying to stop bleeding, but if possible, have that dissolve over the course of a few weeks and potentially recanalize. Well, you mentioned uh, placenta accreta before, or let's say you have somebody with a true placenta previa. Have you ever had a delivery performed in the interventional radiology suite with uh, catheters in place before a uh, delivery was begun? Well, we do it slightly differently because the gynecologists are not comfortable with us. So what we tend to do is we bring the patient down to radiology before an elective delivery. And with very limited flow, very quickly, we put in occlusion balloon catheters into either the hypogastric or internal iliac arteries uh, right above the uterine artery or in the uterine artery itself with the balloons deflated. 
and we test them to be sure that we know how much to put in. And then we take the patient up to the delivery suite, and we'll have a C-arm available, and then the delivery is performed. And if hemorrhage occurs, we're able to inflate those balloons while the patient is right there, and we're able to control the hemorrhage and before it gets out of control. And we can perform an embolization through those catheters. It's not our ideal circumstance because the visualization, et cetera, is not as good. But I think for the patient, for the obstetricians, and for the pediatricians, they're much more comfortable when they have all their tools available. Well, I wonder if we can shift to adenomyosis. Can you tell us a little bit about the condition? Well, it's an interesting condition in that it's maybe one of the least understood of gynecologic conditions. I was about a year ago as a participant in a European sort of consensus panel related to it, and we all had the consensus that we don't really understand what causes the condition. We don't really know how to define the condition. We don't really know how to treat the condition. So there is consensus about it. It's just not the consensus that we'd like. What happens is the endometrial tissue essentially invades the wall of the uterus and sets up nests of glandular material within the muscle. So you have adeno or glandular tissue within the muscle, meiosis. It is the cousin of endometriosis in that it is ectopic endometrial tissue, endometriosis where it's outside the uterus and this is where it's in the wall. It tends to cause globular enlargement of the uterus. Uh, it's rather soft and boggy and pelvic examinations, but it might be mistaken for fibroids because if you have the uterus enlarged, the first thing a physician would think about would be fibroids. But if it's a relatively smooth uterus and it's soft or relatively boggy, then you can suspect that. Of course, the conditions can coexist. Yes, and in fact, they commonly do. And when they coexist, our treatment is very similar to what we do with uterine fibroids alone. They're certainly candidates for embolization. The bigger question is, how to treat it when it's in a pure adenomyosis without fibroids or without only trivial fibroids. And we don't have a clear answer, actually. And the reason is is that the extent of adenomyosis is quite variable. You can have an adenomyoma or a focal rounded area of adenomyosis, which tends to act a little bit more like a fibroid. You can have focal adenomyosis, in which it just involves a region of the uterus, and then you can have diffuse adenomyosis, which generally has the worst symptoms and is perhaps the more difficult to treat. And then the thickness or the extent of invasion into the uterus is quite variable from an MRI scan to say 12 millimeters is sort of the threshold for diagnosis up to you know, four or even five centimeters. So it can be really quite extensive. I mean, do you rely on angiography or does MRI have a role in assessing these patients? I think that MRI really is pretty much the broadly accepted way of diagnosing this. It can be picked up on quality ultrasound, but it's more difficult. And I think that the diagnostic criteria are easier to establish on an MRI. That's one of the reasons why in our fibroid embolization practice, we use MRI as essentially the exclusive diagnostic tool because it gives us exquisite detail in terms of location of fibroid size, etc. But it also is very good at picking up adenomyosis, particularly when it's in between fibroids or adjacent to fibroids. So it is, I think, generally it's agreed that the sensitivity and specificity of MRI is, in general practice, is better for adenomyosis than it would be, say, for ultrasound. Now, I seem to recall a few papers talking about patients with really unexplained infertility having very, very vascular uteruses, much like adenomyosis. I think it probably is adenomyosis. It depends upon the lens through which you're looking. If you're a gynecologist or a gynecologic ultrasonographer, you might be using Doppler to see a very vascular uterus, but it might be difficult on that image to actually make the diagnostic criteria for adenomyosis. If that same patient had a, an MRI, you might be able to see the typical signs of adenomyosis. I do think adenomyosis is associated with subfertility. There can be implantation problems. There can be placentation problems. But I think because it's difficult to diagnose with certainty, 
the data on all these things is very spotty because, you know, we don't screen the average woman for adenomyosis. It's just not generally done. Well, you know, my own impression is that the primary issue, aside from the histology, is the hyperemia or hypervascularity of the uterus. And in fact, many of these people, you can identify that the uterus is hypervascular, and you may never, ever have histologic confirmation that this is specifically adenomyosis. I remember a few years ago, I was discussing a case with a referring gynecologist. A woman had a big, tender uterus, and it was very, very vascular. And I said, you know, this is diffuse adenomyosis. And she thanked me a lot for the preoperative heads up because she said that she doesn't ever even like to use a hysteroscope in these patients because, I remember what she said, these patients bleed like stink. And so she's actually become a very vocal proponent for embolization for starting. I mean, you're dealing with a hypervascular issue, then you would think a natural way to approach this is to decrease the vascularity, whereas what embolization presumably Well, embolization comes does work, and we regularly perform embolization for women with adenomyosis. But the issue, we think, although, again, we need to do larger and maybe better designed studies, most of the data we have is really from case series at this stage. It does depend upon the extent and the severity of the adenomyosis. So if we take the one extreme, a woman with a 14- or 16-week-sized uterus, diffuse, you know, extensive adenomyosis, that woman might respond to embolization, but the chances of them responding is less than it might be for a different patient with less extensive and more focal adenomyosis. So it's generally agreed among interventionalists based on the data we have right now that if you have an adenomyoma, it will respond typically like a fibroid, and therefore you can treat that patient with embolization. They're probably going to have a very similar result as they might with uh, fibroid embolization. If they have focal adenomyosis, they're probably going to do reasonably well, although they may have a little bit higher failure rate. Maybe they would succeed in 80% of cases. Diffuse adenomyosis, depending upon the extent, I usually tell patients that we're looking more at the 60 to 80% range, depending. Thanks to Dr. James Spees of the Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C., who has been our guest, and we've been discussing the role of uterine artery embolotherapy for uterine hemorrhage and adenomyosis. I'm Dr. Jason Bernholtz. You've been listening to the advances in medical imaging from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at reachmd.com, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Advances in Medical Imaging. For more details on this week's show or to download the segment, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.